the number one staple of crime coverage, police coverage, is always going to be the, the crime of the day. What happened was, as crime began to go down, it allowed reporters the time to dig down deeper on some of the issues. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Rocco Parascandola, the police bureau chief for the New York Daily News. The Daily News has really been at the forefront this week of breaking coverage of the subway shooting in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where a gunman opened fire on commuters, shooting 10 and leaving at least 23 people injured. A 62-year-old man named Frank James was arrested for the shooting on Wednesday after a 29-hour manhunt that ended in the East Village. I used to work with Rocco when I was starting out as a night reporter covering crime in the city for the New York Daily News, and Rocco was the police bureau chief. I called him up on Friday morning to discuss the subway shooting, crime in New York City, and how reporting on crime and policing has changed over the course of his career. Thanks for coming on the show, Rocco. I really appreciate it. No problem. How you doing, Aiden? I'm doing well. Uh, how are you? I know it's been a busy week. It's been busy. It's a little slower, t- a little slower today, so I'm uh, finally getting my sea legs back, I guess you could say. Right, getting, getting a breather. Now, I, I wanted to talk about Frank James, who is the man charged in the Brooklyn subway shooting. What's sure. the latest on this story? Well, he was arraigned yesterday, ordered held without bail, as, as, to, as was expected, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. charged in federal court. Um, and now the big question is the motive. You know, what, what is behind all this? I mean, he, he's, uh, his various videos are out there and, you know, easily accessible to the viewing public. Um, he's spoken with anger about a lot of different issues, uh, but it's not really clear why he acted out um, on Tuesday morning why he acted out in Brooklyn, why he acted out at that subway station, and, and why he acted out, period. It's, uh, he, he does have a lot of anger. He does apparently have a mental health history. He alluded to it himself in one of his videos. Uh, but this, this might turn out to be one of those cases where um, it's not really known what the motive is. And, you know, generally, you don't need a motive for a prosecution, but, you know, we reporters love to know what the motive is. And also, I think people who read the papers and watch TV news, they, they like to know. They like to be able to understand it. And certainly jurors uh, like to know what the motive is. It, it allows them to, I think, uh, connect the dots easier and, and evaluate the evidence if there's a motive in mind or a motive that's been presented. But right now, we, we don't know that. The police don't know it. So that's, that's really the big unanswered question. Some of his movements are still... Uh, not entirely clear. We have a story today. Other media does as well about where he was subsequent to the shooting and what he did um, and ultimately how he was caught. But there are still some gaps in that timeline. Um, and police are also trying to fill in those gaps as well. That's right. I was reading that he had he had gone to Cat's Deli. He went to Dimes, which is like a trendy restaurant down in, in Chinatown. Right. But he, you know, he was a fugitive for, for like 29 hours. What was the NYPD doing in that time to try and track him down? Like, what, what does that process look like? Well, I mean, the process is, uh, is you know, pretty much always what it is. You know, the first thing they, they try to turn to is video. Now, there was an issue at, uh, at both that station and the 25th Street station, which is uh, the station one, uh, one stop um, north of 36th. Uh, that's where he exited. Uh, the issue being that the cameras, um, the, MTA, the MTA cameras in those stations were were not working. Uh, however, uh, subsequent to that, they, uh, you know, they were able to capture images of him um, uh, by doing the, you know, what's known as a video canvas. And what that means basically is that the police department, but well, they have two ways of they have two ways of doing that. 
in, in the business districts, particularly Midtown and Downtown, there's so many cameras that are part of this this ring. This essentially this uh, this camera ring that the police can can access from uh, you know from one of its uh, one of its main hubs, where they could uh, you know look at a look at video from Park and 43rd, Park and 45th. Park and 46, the buildings in between, et cetera, that are part of that network. Um, that network uh, is less so in other parts of Manhattan and in the outer boroughs, but there are still a lot of cameras out there. City-run, uh, city-run cameras, DOT cameras, police-run cameras, and there are, and there, obviously there are uh, privately-run cameras outside of outside of Bodega or or, or what have you. Uh, and so what the police will do is they'll try to access those cameras and literally go block to block. So if they see someone, for instance, at Fourth Avenue and Twenty Fifth Street, okay, let's go to the next available camera, Fourth and Twenty Fourth and Twenty Fourth. So there he is, and you keep following him, following him, until you try, until you ultimately either catch him or I identify him. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point after the shooting, he did ditch his um, his uh, construction helmet and his uh, neon vest, apparently trying to pass himself off as a construction worker of some sort. Um, because the initial descriptions obviously described him as such. And once they realized that uh, he was no longer wearing those clothes, um, you know, that slowed the time, I guess, uh, by a little bit before they were able to figure out, you know, okay, the guy at this corner is in fact him. Uh, and then from that, they'll use other, you know, they'll, they'll use other tools like, uh, like facial recognition. So that took a while. Uh, but, but the reality is by the middle of the afternoon, um, his picture was out. His picture was out yeah. on the uh, police department on the police department website. And then they, um, when they had a press conference that evening uh, at six o'clock, maybe a little past six p.m., you know, they put it out again. And so, you know, he was named, and his face was out there um, by that evening. And what was it like as a reporter during that time that he was uh, in, in the city? I mean, were you, were you chasing down sort of a million tips on where he might be? Is, is information coming into you at the t- same time as it's coming into the police? Yeah, I mean, so, of course. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that is, you know, the whole misinformation dynamic that you have to deal with. Right. Because uh, uh, you know, the whole city's watching, the whole city's chiming in, the whole city has opinions on it on social media. And then at some point, a picture of a man... Um, circulated online. Um, people were saying this was the guy. No, it, the source of the information was not entirely clear. Um, and so, you know, you take that picture and then you go to your sources and you say, is this him? And the answer is everyone's saying it, but that's not the guy. And that, that actually took a while to figure out. And this is before we had a name. Mm. Um, uh, we at the news had a feeling early on that it wasn't him, if only because one of our reporters had heard that the that the suspect is probably in his early 60s and this man looks substantially younger this man theoretically could have uh, could have been as early as uh, as young as 22 or 23 years old so we we did have a feeling it wasn't him but that's just one piece of the misinformation that uh, uh, you know that was out there um, and then you know people chime in you know with various opinions uh, about what it might be about and all that and what the date right. might mean in terms of the significance because because early on when we thought maybe it would be you know terrorism in the classic sense of the way we think of terrorism um you know one of the things you think of is okay does this date mean anything is it the anniversary of something mm. and uh and we couldn't quite that didn't appear to be the case although by night's end it was clear from one of his videos that 
he had a while ago indicated in in one of his videos Tuesday the 12th and I think he might have said 14 days from now let's say and yeah. that turned out to be Tuesday the 12th so that 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 still led us to believe that that date has some sort of significance um and who knows we haven't been able to find it maybe it was just the, just the day he decided to come here and it, and, and it didn't have a uh, a particular uh, tie to any event you know he posted these extremely long and and uh, kind of nuts videos on on his YouTube channel. Is there any information about you know his political ideology or his uh, opinions about the city and about Eric Adams that we could glean from that? Um, I read a little bit about that, but I'd, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean he's, he's you know he's, he's critical of the mayor. He's uh, mm. um, you know he he's he's critical in some regards uh, of white people. He's critical in some regards of uh, of black people who he believes. Um, you know, uh, are, are prone to believe that, you know, that whites in general have their best interests at heart and they're only going to be let down if they believe that. Mm. Um, he's, you know, he's kind of all, he's kind of all over the place. And, and yes, while the opinions are strong, uh, you know, because he goes back and forth, uh, it, it's hard in some ways to, 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 to say, you know what, that's probably the reason why he acted out. Right. Um, I mean, typically when the motives, in such an attack, such attacks are clear. Well, when they're when they're when they're articulated by police, by prosecutors, it, you know, it's usually because you know the person has spoken mostly about that and has mm -hmm. not been, you know, all over the map necessarily. And, and you know, this man very much is is kind of all over the map with his anger. Right. Now, I, I read a, uh, in the Daily News yesterday a pretty terrifying detail, which was that the, the only thing that he said before he started shooting was, was start running. Do we know about how the shooting unfolded inside the subway car, sort of step by step? Yeah, I mean, it was the second car of the mm -hmm. Manhattan bound uh, uh, end train, and he was sitting, sitting in the back. Um, and at some point, he, uh, he gets up and he he activates one of the smoke bombs and someone says something in fact what are you doing and and in addition to what you just said he's also heard saying oops which would huh. suggest maybe it went off quicker than he wanted it to go off and then he then you know detonates the other one and, and then starts and then starts opening fire um some witnesses say that prior to that he had been kind of mumbling to himself um, and not in any sort of way that necessarily led people to believe something bad was, uh, was about to happen. Um, mm. you know, it's a subway system. It's this, it's this unique place. And, you know, there is a, uh, there has been, um, an issue with, uh, uh, you know, more and more homeless in the subway, many of them mentally ill. Um, so to see someone who's kind of mumbling to himself, you know, we see it all the time in the subway system, and right. you know, yeah. it, 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 does, it doesn't it doesn't lead to this. So it didn't strike people as um, as out of the ordinary. But once, obviously, he started opening fire, it was, it was clear that this was no ordinary day. There's one guy who got got pretty famous all, in all this, and it's sort of a, a good story, and that's Zach Tahan, who is a, an immigrant right. from Syria, and he called the police after seeing Frank James in the East Village uh, shortly before right. he was was arrested. Do you know, and I, I know a ton of people are asking this, do you know if, if Zach is going to get the $50,000 reward that police offered for information leading to, to Frank James's arrest? Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> these things are always very interesting, right? Because particularly when a lot of people are stepping forward. 
right. Uh, and yeah. it, it's fascinating, and, it, and it's 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 really not in, it's not entirely clear yet. In fact, there are some people who believe, um, and I believe one of the police unions might have been pushing back early on against against Zach's uh, account, mm. uh, thinking that uh, that this did not happen the way he made it out to be. The reality is, a lot of things sort of happened all at once. First, the suspect himself called Crime Stoppers. Right. Um, and uh, but even prior to that, there had been a number of sightings of him. Tips called into police. Uh, there was uh, video posted. Uh, forgive me, I'm not sure if it's. I don't recollect if it was video or um, or a photo uh, of him on Canal Street. And uh, and I think that person had also contacted police. And this was this was uh, uh, this was on Tuesday. So. So those there were a number of tips that that sort of allowed police to, as they put it, kind of uh, closing on his world. Yeah. Um, after the, between the time that the, the shooting happened and the time that he was caught, uh, so it might be that that, that more than one person um, that more than one person gets the reward that it gets divvied up, but it's 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 not entirely clear. And then also interestingly enough, you do actually you are supposed to call the Crime Stoppers number, which is an eight hundred number. It doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, you you can't be credited if you call 911. But, you know, if there are a number of people who are aiming for a piece of that pie, it, it mm. might be interesting. This 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 this, this could get ugly, as uh, as you know, money can uh, money can make people. And right, and yeah. so when when he called, you know, like I said a few moments ago, he did call it in himself. He said he was at the McDonald's at first and sixth. Uh, they wanted his number. He said it was a new phone. He didn't have the number or he didn't recall it. And the phone battery was low, but I'll be at McDonald's either inside charging the phone or outside. Uh, they get there minutes later. He's not there. They get back in their car. And as they drive off, they're being pointed to where he is. So, so you have James calling on himself, people pointing. People calling in, people posting pictures. So it's uh, it's a mm. little dicey at this point. It's not a clear. We did ask the police that yesterday, and they haven't figured it out yet. Hmm. One thing that I find so unnerving about what happened is that it happened in Sunset Park, which is such a quiet neighborhood in Brooklyn. Right. Do we have any idea why it happened there? Does it seem sort of random at this point? Seemingly, I mean, it, it is a very busy station, but obviously, right. when you think a terror attack in New York City, the subway system, the first thing that's going to come to mind is Times Square. Right or you know a busy Manhattan station, maybe Barclay Center. In the if, if it's going to be an out of borough station, maybe the Barclay Center. Yeah. Um, so it's not clear, uh, and in some ways, it's it makes it even more frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this goes this goes to what the NYPD and other law enforcement has been, have been saying for years, and that is, you know, post nine eleven, all these various measures that were that law enforcement put into place around the country were aimed at uh, preventing another 9-11 style attack. Uh, and what we've seen beginning with, um, uh, uh, beginning with, uh, I'd say probably around 2007, 2008, is a, is a different dynamic. Uh, the emergence of the, uh, you know, the lone wolf, mm. uh, as, well as, uh, as well as these small bore attacks that take place anywhere. Uh, because after 9-11, I think if you, you People said to themselves, okay, I don't live in Midtown or I live in a small town in Missouri um, and I'm, you know, I'm not visiting big landmarks like the Empire State Building. I'm okay. I'm safe. 
Um, but the reality is it's actually scarier when it right. happens at uh, an insi- you know, a, a, a nondescript train station or it happens out, outside a, you know, a store in a small town in California, let's say. Uh, so in some ways, it's even more frightening. You're not necessarily you're not going to get the numbers that you're going to get uh, like you would on 9-11. But the mm. fear level uh, in some ways is magnified because it just gives the impression that this really can actually happen anywhere. Right. And, you know, I want to talk about uh, a crime in, a, in, a, in New York a little bit since since 9-11. And be, because there's this perception, I think, uh, in the rest of the country and for certain national media outlets that crime is out of control in New York and has sort of spiraled out in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of debate right. about whether that's true. Right. You know better than anyone. How bad is crime in New York right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, we're not we're not anywhere near the level we were at at the height of the crack era, you know, the late right. 80s and, and early 90s. And we, we had all gotten used to a city that really beginning in the mid 90s, uh, that was safer and safer each year. I mean, you know, with the occasional blip upwards, mm-hmm. uh, you know, murders at an all time low shootings at an all time low. Um, and it was always good whenever there was spikes to the police department to try to compare the numbers to what it was in the crack era. But we're further enough removed from that, that really the, the, the comparison has to be not to what it was like in 1990, but what, what was it like, you know, a couple of years ago. And the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, at the end of 19, this was still a remarkably safe city with numbers still hitting record lows in, in, in different in different categories. Um, in 2020, you know, changed all that. Uh, the combination it was the pandemic, mm. you know, the effects of which I don't think we're going to fully know until this is studied years in advance. But but clearly there had to be some effect there. I mean, certainly it it slowed the court system to a halt. So so you did have. Uh, you did have uh, a criminal justice system that wasn't operating at, at full speed. Um, and then you have the issue of bail reform. And, and the, you know, people on both sides of the aisle uh, have strong opinions about whether or not um, there's various bail reform and discovery measures uh, have been a factor in, in the surge in crime. Um, whatever the cause may be, you know, New York now in 2022, uh, there, there is a sense of in a lot of pockets of the city, a sense of disorder uh, and a sense of violence can happen anywhere. We've had a number of shootings in which innocent people have been killed. Mm. Kids, even 12-year-old, 3-year-old shot, shot and wounded. Um, you know, just last week we had a, three teenagers, completely innocent, shot on their way home from school. One of them, one of them was killed. The other two survived. But you know, they'll be forever, forever traumatized. Um, so it is. It is, it is, it is right now, you know, there's a perception and the reality and the numbers say it's still not that dangerous, you know, even compared to, even compared to, let's say, uh, you know, the early 2000s when crime was still going down, but was still at levels, um, you know, far from the level that it was in 2019. Uh, But so there's a reality and then there's the perception. And sometimes if the perception is, that things are bad, that obviously impacts behavior. Unless people go out at night, um, they're, so what does that mean? They're less likely to maybe contribute to the city economy. They're not going to plays. They're not going to the movies, et cetera. They're not going to restaurants. And it, it just has a, you know, all of that contributes to other issues in the city. And it, it just one sort of feeds off the other. And, 
you know, we're in kind of a bad spot right now. It reminds me, I, uh, I should say I, I worked uh, under you a free few years ago when I was first starting out my career as a, as a reporter for the Daily News. And I was working on the overnight shift and I was paired up with uh, a bunch of different photographers. And they would always, you know, because they had been doing this for decades, and they would always talk about how in the 80s and 90s, crime on the uh, overnight was crazy. There was so much of it. You had to choose which shooting to run to at any given time. Sure. Whereas at, by the time I was doing it in, uh, you know, 2016, 2017, it was relatively quiet at night. Is that sort of the only way that covering crime and policing in the city has changed in the years that you've been doing it? Well, you know, I mean, the number one staple of crime coverage, police coverage is always going to be the crime of the day, particularly if you're at a paper like the Daily News or a paper like the Post, which is where I got my start. I mean, that's the bread and butter. People are fascinated by real crime stories. That's never, ever going to change. What happened was as crime began to go down and drop significantly through the years, it, uh, it, it allowed reporters at the time, particularly at the, at the papers uh, where perhaps we didn't have the resources, to, to dig deeper, uh, dig down deeper on some, of, on some of the issues. And so even before the police reform movement that came out of the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota, mm. uh, there was a greater emphasis uh, by a lot of newspapers, ours included, on issues such as uh, police transparency and, and police misconduct records, which for years have been kind of shrouded in secrecy, and uh, inequities in policing, and this stop and frisk probably is the is the best known example. And these are all issues that we were able to pay greater attention to because we actually had more time to do it. Because instead of five or six murders a day and ten or twelve shootings a day to choose from, you know, it was there were times where it was. Maybe there was a murder a day. Maybe there wasn't a murder for a couple of days. So there was less. There was, there was always breaking news, but there was far less major uh, uh, violent crimes, it seemed like. And that gave us a chance to look at some of the other issues. And even as crime has spiked back up the last couple of years, those issues are still uh, hot button topics and they still get covered extensively. Um, because particularly since Floyd, but even before then, especially during the stop and frisk controversy, um, you know, the advocates have have uh, been able to sort of drive the narrative mm. and uh, and get their message out. And, and and with the advent of smartphones and more and social media and then more out there online um, regarding police misconduct or just smartphone videos, et cetera, uh, you know, there's more pushback against police. So certainly there's another narrative that's that's thrown out there. And um, and that's all contributed to a, a look at police that you didn't see regularly uh, during the height of the crack era. And what, what's interesting about that, I find, too, is that New York just elected Mayor Eric Adams, and he sort of embraced a more aggressive policing approach in response to the rising crime. What's it been like covering him and his administration compared to previous mayors that you've that you've reported on? Yeah, I mean, he's very much, you know, he's very much like Giuliani, not necessarily in politics, but certainly, certainly in how he how he's out and about every day. I mean, he's everywhere. I mean, Giuliani right. was everywhere. And there was no such thing as a, a day off on the weekend. Uh, um, you know, Bloomberg, you know, on Friday, you'd see him at the end of the day. And that was it. You didn't see him till Monday. Um, the Blasio's uh, similarly. But uh, but uh, Eric Adams is Mayor Adams is, is out there. He's at he's at zero bond uh, he, and Cipriani on. Uh, he's on he's at zero nights. bond and Cipriani. He's he's at he's at crime scenes. He's he's talking right. at press conferences at police headquarters. Uh, so he has he has uh, really changed uh, 
he's changed the uh, he's changed the dynamic. Um, he believes, and Police Commissioner Sewell believes also, that um, the two key public safety measures put in place so far this year, um, you know, the sort of reconstituted version of anti-crime and uh, the re-emphasis on quality like policing, or if you will, broken windows policing, um, that those can be done, that broken windows policing, for instance, can be done effectively and without abuse, and that the neighborhood safety unit, which uh, follows the disbandment two years ago of anti-crime, that that unit, which is tasked with getting guns off the street, that those officers can, can do it, do it effectively, and do it without the Without the abuses, that sort of led to its disbandment two years ago. Uh, a number of officers with a lot of complaints against them, allegations of warrants, uh, of raids carried out without warrants, uh, jumping out of cars and just stopping people on the street without justification, et cetera. Now, the critics of the police department, and there are many, you know, they feel they've kind of heard this before, and, um, and they're worried. They're worried about the impact it's going to have. Uh, on community relations, particularly for black and for black and brown people, men, young mm-hmm. men mostly, uh, and they worry about a return to uh, to an era of you know what they consider overly aggressive, uh, racially profile based policing. And I think until the police department can can do it without the abuses, there's always going to be that skepticism. I guess they're just going to have to live with the with the criticism. And the fact of the matter is at Police Plaza, you know, people people have been around long enough. They get the criticism and, and they get that they're not going to win the critics over until they can actually prove it, until they actually go out there and prove that, you know, we've been, you know, in a year of this new gun unit, we've taken X guns off the street. Uh, we've made X number of arrests. And, you know, guess what? Our officers have only been named in, you know, a minimum number of complaints, that sort of thing. Right. Now, you've been NYPD Bureau Chief at the Daily News since 2009, right? Summer of 09, yes. It, I mean, it's one of the most fascinating jobs in, in journalism. How did you get into it? I mean, I grew up wanting to become a, a sports reporter, although although really by the time I had gotten to college, I, I was much more or just as, just as much interested in, 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 you know, conventional, real news, so to speak, I guess you could say, regular news. Right. And crime news has always been fascinating to me because, I, you know, I grew up reading the papers. The Daily News was the paper in my house. It was the only paper that was ever in my house. <laughs> and um, and I grew up reading The Columnist. You know, I grew up reading Breslin, basically. And, yeah. you know, by the, time gone, by the time I was in college, I was, you know, also reading uh, Pete Hamill, Dennis Hamill, and some of the other columnists as well. And, you know, their, their columns on crime and crime issues mesmerized me. So, you know, I knew at that point, this is what I wanted to do. And so when I started at the Post, I was a runner, which, as you know, means mostly covering breaking crime. Yep. And, um, you know, I never, I never tired of it. And I, and I figured that, you know, I was either going to want to do this for my career or maybe cover courts. And circumstances led me to police headquarters. And, you know, that's where I've been. Yeah. How's the reporting competition between the Daily News and the New York Post these days? At least, at least on the police beat. Well, you know that we don't we don't leave a, we don't leave a scene or a house that the Post does, and vice versa, right? I think uh, I had I, I think I spent a week straight at Anthony Weiner's house because the Post reporter wouldn't leave. Sure, um, <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. I, I get that, and I remember when I was a runner having to do 
you know, uh, similar circumstances. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's still, it, it's still, a, it's still a heavy competition. I mean, in some ways it's less so because, you know, the internet has changed everything. And, and so right. no one really, very rarely are exclusives held into the paper the next day. Mm. The feeling is like, get it up there because someone's going to probably beat you to it. Right. Um, sometimes, sometimes exclusives will be held to the next day or sometimes they'll be held and posted online, you know, late enough in the evening, uh, the feeling being the, the competition will be able to match it in time, you know, before deadline, uh, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So maybe it's not, maybe it's not as fierce and maybe because there seems to be more news cycles in the day than ever. And there are more websites than ever. Uh, it just sort of feels like everyone is in competition with everyone and not necessarily, it's not just about the news and the post. Right. Um, but it still exists and it drives you and it really would, it would make you, it's what makes you better as a reporter. I mean, I still read every day, you know, for instance, with Frank James, how did the post cover it? News, Newsday Times. What did what did we get that they didn't? What did we miss? Mm. What did they miss? How did we miss it? You always want to learn from your mistakes. You know, I'm never happy with, fully happy with our coverage. I always feel like I could have done something more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not so healthy, but I think always wanting to, to get it to do it better is a, is a good thing. And I'm sure my colleagues at the Post feel the same way. You mentioned changes there. One of the things that I noticed was when I was working the night shift, it, it used to be a pretty crowded field. You know, the New York Times had a night reporter, the New York Post had a night reporter. Right. And I'm uh, pretty sure when I was doing it, the New York Post, that was when the New York Post stopped having an overnight reporter. Are there any overnight reporters left, at least out uh, in New no. York City? Sadly, there's not. I mean, we huh. closed the, we, we were the last ones uh, out of the office. We closed the lights yeah. behind us, I guess. Uh, there, Does that there worry is, you? Uh, nothing- What's that? Does that does that worry you? Do you think it's bad for the city not to have like reporters out in in the streets? Uh, well, I I, I, t- uh, I mean, listen. I, anytime there's less reporters somewhere, I, right? I, you know, it's a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's what here's what here's what you don't get if you don't have an overnight reporter. Well, let me put it this way: here's what we got having an overnight reporter, particularly um, after the post, you know, did away with theirs. I think their last reporter signed off about one thirty or two a.m. So when we had an overnight reporter, we very often, I would say in an average month, at least once a week, we would have online by 7 or 8 a.m. a story completely locked down, everything, names, witnesses. And sometimes you get the witnesses before, you know, they leave with police or before they go to the precinct. That's the only time they get them because once once they're being interviewed by police, maybe afterwards they're going to work. Maybe they decide not to talk to the press after that. Maybe police ask them not to talk to the press after that. So having that overnight person there out on the street when there's very little, very little people out there, um, including police. I mean, generally speaking, unless it's a major police-involved shooting, let's say, uh, what you're going to find at an overnight crime scene are a couple of supervisors and the case detectives. And there's almost a feeling like, hey, we're all out of here together in the shivering cold, let's say. Yep. And so they're more likely to talk to the press then. And I'm not talking about giving on the record interviews with A to Z, but just, you know, giving us a heads up. Hey, you know, this is what it looks like. You know, we think this is about this or stick around. You know, we hear, we hear the victim's mothers coming to the scene. So it's, it's more informal overnight. And if you're out there as a reporter, you get that. And yeah. getting that, like I said, often means you're way ahead of the competition. Just as they're starting their day, you're, you're already posting the story online. So 
So that's what you miss by not by not having it. Now you can still catch up, obviously, in the course of the day, mm-hmm. um, but you you do miss that. Now, my last question, because I know uh, it's busy busy week, and I want you to get back to it. But um, are are you optimistic about the future of local news in in New York City? A very good question. Um, I mean, there's things that that trouble me. I mean, anytime, I mean, I mean, I was looking at a, a copy of. Uh, some old copies of the post that I have from, you know, from the, from the early nineties, I started there in 89. And, uh, you know, what do you see? You see a paper that on a daily basis was, you know, north of 96 pages and physically the paper was actually bigger. Um, way more reporters than there are now. The same holds true for the daily news. Um, so all of that is, all of that is bad. Uh, right. However, what's what's good is, um, you know, you have popping up fairly routinely all these uh, all these websites. A lot of them, um, you know, financed. You know, the sort of not you know not for profit sites, mm-hmm. uh, and they're doing they're doing really good things. They're filling gaps. They're covering things that aren't getting covered necessarily uh, by the mainstream press. Um, and you read them and you get ideas from them. And, you know, when they cover the same stories you're covering, um, you realize like you got to be on your, on your game even more. So, so all of that, all of that is good. And, um, I think there's a feeling at the news that, uh, now that, now that a lot of this is metric based, you can measure obviously the stories that get read the most and the most clicks and stuff. And I'm not a fan of clickbait. Right. But when you see how a certain story gets gets viewed a lot of times, and and it's a story that you believe in, it's a story that's issues driven. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, where Kim Kardashian had dinner, <laughs> but when you see a story that you're writing about an issue that is important to the city that that you're interested in covering because you think it's important, that the readers think is important as well, you know, it inspires you to do more stories like that. So that that's the good. And I think, uh, and I think, because just generally speaking, people will always have an appetite for news. That um, you know, there's always going to be hope. Right, Rocco Parascandola. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Thanks, Dave. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out coverage of my conversation with Rocco Parascandola on Mediate.com. <laughs>